button, 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 punch. When you have a great interview or you're going to do a great interview, what are the things that you need to hit? Those are the buttons. But what's the last thing that you're going to ask that you're going to remember always? From WNET New York Public Media, welcome to WNET Up Next. Hi, I'm Tom Stewart. At Up Next, we take you behind the scenes for a closer look at what's happening here. We'll be talking about our programs and introducing you to the people who create them. Our guest today has had a varied and extensive career producing news for television. He's created, launched, and run programs for major news outlets, including CNN and Fox. He's a three-time Emmy nominee and winner of the New York Festival Award for Best Breaking News Coverage, among many other honors. He's a relative newcomer to WNET. He's been working intensely over the last few months on the relaunch of our local weekly news program, Metro Focus, as a daily program. It's my great pleasure to welcome Dave Brown to Up Next. Dave, it's great to have you with us. Tom, thank you so much. Metro Focus, uh, it's been around a while. I think started around four years ago. Tell us a little bit about the history of the program. Wow, it started out as a, a web entity that became a weekly show that looked at the tri-state area, but far afield. What I'd like to do is narrow us more into the impactfulness, reflectiveness of what the show could be. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, creating the not just the linear, the television site, but the website and the app. So it becomes like a go-to for all New Yorkers in the tri-state area to get their news and information. Of course, most of us think of local news as uh, breaking news, uh, sports, weather, but you are going in a very different direction. Uh, fill us in on that. Well, the, the goal of Metro Focus really is to be water cooler. Um, if you're talking about it, it doesn't have to be breaking news right now, but in the coming days or hours after the fact, it's still being spoken about. We, what's beautiful about Metro Focus and PBS in general is that I don't have a commercial to stop me. I don't have to hit that break at that time. So I can go, as we did with Governor McGreevy when we taped him, what was supposed to be a 10-minute interview turned into a 30-minute interview. Mm -hmm. And it was lovely and wonderful, and as the governor was gracious to be with us. And it allows me, as a storyteller and a journalist, to really go for it. And I don't think anywhere else you're going to get such great insight and information. Plus, the beauty of the web and the interactivity is when we're up and running, you'll be able to submit questions or ideas, and you can be a part of the story or enlighten us as to what stories are out there that we're not covering. That's great. I know you have some several segments which really are engaging the viewer in a more direct way. Can you tell us what those are? Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, my Metro Focus is wonderful. Little Anthony, who was a singer from the 1950s and the 60s. Imperials, the Imperials. The right. Imperials, Tears on My Pillow. Um, little Anthony went to Boys and Girls High School. I was Boys High School in Brooklyn at the time. And in 1956, Little Anthony heard himself on the radio. Somebody smuggled him a radio in class, and he heard Tears on My Pillow. And Little Anthony didn't like school that much, and <laughs> he promptly closed his book. And he walked away from his desk, and he never looked back. So his New York moment, his metro focus moment, was that day when he walked out of that school. And we took little Anthony back 55 or such years later to tell us that story, and we wanted to bring him back to high school because he walked out that one day, and he hadn't gone back. And that was his moment. But whether you are running a television network or whether you are the mayor of the city or whether you're the sanitation man or woman or the male person, um, everybody has a New York story and a New York moment. Tell us about the first time you saw the skyline or the first time you fell in love with a Nathan's Frankfurt or a Coney Island. Mm. Everybody has a New York story. And it's interesting to me as a first-generation American and a lifelong New Yorker, 
what everybody has in their purview. So the My Metro Focus segments, that really sounds terrific. Thank uh, you. T- tell me about listening in, what's happening there. There are so many great things that are going on around Manhattan and the tri-state area, but not everybody can get to them. So what we're going to be doing is partnering up, let's say, with New York Magazine, who has this wonderful festival and these speakers that come in. Jeffrey Tambor will be a guest on an upcoming show, and we're providing you with an opportunity to have a virtual seat at his speech. Toni Morrison is part of the Listening In series so far this year. So what we can do is bring that to the audience, whether it's at the Concordia Group where the Vice President was speaking the other day, or the 92nd Street Y, or the New York Festival. Some wonderful people take to the stage of New York City and the tri-state area. And uh, they're available, you know, once we air them on our website, we'll be able to link up to our other partners as well. And um, we can bring you a little bit of what you would like to go to, but you didn't know that was there, or you couldn't get to it. And uh, another one of the new segments is called Giving Back. Uh, Tell us about that. There are so many great people in Manhattan and around the area that dedicate their time and their money, their resources, their expertise to the community and they, the philanthropy that's going on at grassroots level or on the corporate level is often not spotlighted. Uh, we have a wonderful segment coming up with Genevieve Paturo. She runs this program called the Pajamas and Books Program. And uptown in Harlem um, and in the Bronx, Genevieve meets with children. And, of course, they know what books are. But a lot of them have never seen or worn a pair of pajamas. And she delivers both. And these children take to it and they understand the importance of reading, and they feel special with the pajamas, and she's affected the lives of thousands and thousands of children. So that one program, and there are many of them, and that's just one, what are probably a million in the city that we're going to find and we're going to spotlight. And again, you're absolutely right. Uh, These are things that we really just don't know about, and a a light has not been uh, shown on them. Uh, What are some of the other compelling segments that have already been on the air or, or are yet to come. Um, you know, Governor McGreevy was with us, and very, very interesting, because had the scandal broke now that he was a gay American, would he still be governor in light of SCOTUS's equality ruling? It's something to ponder. And he really, really opened up. Bernard Carrick, former police commissioner, going from being the jailer to going into jail, and the humility it takes to come talk about it now and his fall from grace. What a fascinating man. What a fascinating conversation. Um, and then there's some other stuff that, all right, it's my, you know, I, I run the show and I get to do some fun things because it's my show. <laughs> and I happen to be a big Frank Sinatra fan, as who isn't. 100th anniversary. Uh, 100th sure. anniversary is coming up for sure. So for a preview of that, well, the, the birthday is the week of the 7th of December. And that 12-7 show, Frank Jr. will be with us to talk about his dad. Um, on the Tuesday of that week, we'll be talking to Rolling Stones' Anthony DeCurtis about The Voice. Great. Um, that Thursday show, Eric Valencia will talk about Sinatra cool and Sinatra style. But what I'm very proud of is that Friday show, the day before Frank's 100th birthday. Now, I don't know if everybody out there remembers. I certainly do. The 1976 Muscular Dystrophy Association Telethon, which was an annual event on Labor Day weekend every year. You know, Jerry raised millions and millions and millions of dollars for the advancement of, of research and a cure. And on that, at that event in 76, 
And Frank Sinatra walked on stage with checks in his hand, as per was usual, and said, Jerry, here's a check from this organization and this organization, and on behalf of my grandchildren, here's a check for $5,000. And hey, by the way, a friend, of our, a friend of mine is backstage, wants to come out and say hello. And Jerry's like, sure, bring him out. Dean Martin had not spoken to Jerry Lewis for 20 years. Wow. And out walked Dean Martin. It's one of those moments in television that's iconic. I still get goosebumps thinking yes. about it. And what was it like? You know, Frank's not here to ask him, but only Frank Sinatra could have orchestrated such a thing. And who do I talk to? Well, Dina Martin, Dean Martin's daughter, definitely remembers, and she's on tape with us. But Jerry Lewis and I have a relationship. I've known him for many years. And the other day I went to the Friars Club and sat down with Jerry and Raph and... That last, leading up to the birthday, Martin and Lewis get together to talk about that night. And it's quite eye-opening. And it's a delight for me. One is that I love the personalities involved. But to bring you guys that moment again and to get the backstory that we never heard before. You know, Jerry, did you know this was going to happen? The answer is no. Yes. And then when he gets into it, and when Dina gets into it, or Dina talks about Uncle Frank coming to the house and Uncle Sammy, how wonderful is that? You know, I'm blessed. And I'm standing, you know, sitting here in this radio booth with a smile on my face because what a delicious and delightful insight that we're going to be getting. And that's just one of many, many things coming really, down the pike. Really, looking yeah. forward to that. That Thank is you. really wonderful. You know, you alluded to this before, but again, you know, we, we speak in terms of television, but this is definitely a multi-platform media project. Uh, share with us some of the other aspects of Metro Focus. In other words, I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm in Duluth, Minnesota, but I want to access Metro Focus. How do I do that? Well, wow, it's a great question. Um, first off, we're available online at metrofocus.org, and our website has just been relaunched. And for those of you who live in the tri-state area, now if you go to metrofocus.org, besides seeing all of our content, all of our stories that we've covered, all the videos are there, the entire show, and then by segment. But you'll also be getting headlines um, that are scrolling and up-to-date constantly. You'll get the weather for the tri-state area updated constantly. And you'll get traffic reports constantly for the tri-state area. Mm. And that was kind of just a dream of mine. I wanted us to be a portal for news and information for the entire area. The web team here far exceeded any of my expectations. Um, so you can't think just on the linear television platform. People are watching TV much differently than they did, and a lot of people are watching it on the Internet. Yes. Um, so 13.org has been great, and metrofocus.org is a great destination for, for news and information. But the mobile app as well is being relaunched. It will mimic exactly the website Everything and anything that you want is there. And as we grow, it will grow with it. And it's reactive. So that's your place where you can say, hey, I'd like to see this on your show. Boom, it's there. Or, hey, there's this great story in our neighborhood. Do you know about it? Because if not, here's my phone number. Please call me. I want you to check this out. I will. Can you outline for us a little bit about the production process uh, for Metro Focus and what a typical day is like for you? Wow. For me, I think it's a little different than the rest of the staff, and they are wonderful. My day kind of doesn't start and end. It just kind of always is. Um, <laughs> but it's basically, you know, I've got a team of about 8 to 10 people, and the day starts, we show up here about 9, 
but I've already been online for hours looking, reading, listening, as has a lot of my staff. We get together every morning at 1030 and we hash around what we have booked. Did anybody see this? How are we going to tackle this? What are your angles on that? And we discuss. What I am is basically a filter. And then we just start to form. And as we work on whatever, you know, each one of my teammates is working on a variety of different segments at once. And I have a usually, except for right now, speak very rapidly. <laughs> and I start barreling through what are your banners going to look like and what visuals are you going to use and what's the aim of your story. And I had some really great mentors coming up in the business who always said, button, 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 punch. And in layman's terms, when you have a great interview or you're going to do a great interview, what are the things that you need to hit? Those are the buttons. Mm-hmm. But what's the last thing that you're going to ask that you're going to remember always? Um, what's that last question, what we did with Angela Lansbury? What advice would you give a young Angela Lansbury? Mm-hmm. You know, you're 90 years old now, that 18-year-old that walked onto that set. What would you tell her? And that's a wonderful question because you get reflective. Um, so it's button, 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 punch. And my guys, my team, keep that in mind when they're, when they're formulating their segments. Of course, they come up with questions, and my hosts are absolutely phenomenal. And they'll take them, and they'll rework them, and we all work together. So it's, it's really, really great to be able to work with our friends here at 13 and at the PBS stations around the country. Um, so that's a part of the partnerships, too, and a part of the family. So it's, it does the job, and it does it well. Dave, do you have any particular uh, philosophy of storytelling that pervades your work? Telling a story, of course, you want to tell the arc of the story from the beginning to the middle to the end. I, I find with a lot of producers, a lot of young producers, they forget the context. Don't take for granted that you know a story so well that the person that's viewing is as up to speed as you are. You need context, 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 context. So without the context, you've got nothing. That's your starting point. Make sure the viewer knows or the listener knows where it fits into things. And then there's the arc. And I spoke about the button, 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 mm-hmm. hit me over the head. Yep. That's kind of your arc of your story because everything has a beginning, middle, and an end, even if it's open-ended, you know, Whatever the topic is, whether you're talking to Fred, who produces nature, and talking about pets, but there is an arc to that story, too. So it's, it's telling the story. Look, you can come up with 10 questions for a segment, and from those 10 questions, maybe there's six you want to use, mm-hmm. but it's the order in which you use them to get the best out of your guest, and you want them to be so comfortable that they can go on a trip with you or take you on a journey, but you've got to lead them along in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And when it's at its best, it's brilliant. And if it goes off the rails, it could be more brilliant. <laughs> but you really do want to help guide them through where and how, what's the roadmap? And if they'll go on the journey with you, and if there's a give and take, and one of the things that I love and I'm blessed with my anchors, as I have been across my career, is actively listening, so many talent get so wrapped up in what's the next question that they're not listening to the answer. Mm -hmm. Whereas Raph and Jack and Jenna are listening and they're not just robots. They're, and they have the ammunition and they've studied so well that if the guest throws them a curve and they've actually been listening and they do, they know how to react. They're not just not going to let it go and go to the next question. I'm blessed. And we're, we're better for it, so that's great. 
uh, I'm going to ask you the Angela Lansbury question. Mm. Many young people want careers in uh, media and news. Uh, what's your best advice that you can give them to begin? For if you're young in the business, if you're not even in the business yet, and you're going to college and you're a student, internship, 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 internship. Build your resume before you walk out of school. Being inquisitive, knowing the scheme of history. Now, I might not have been around when Charlie Chaplin was an actor or when Casablanca was released or when the Hindenburg blew up, but I certainly know those events happened. And for a lot of millennials, I don't know if they're not interested or it's a subject matter that's not being taught, but I get a lot of, I wasn't born yet, and that doesn't fly in television. Not only do you need to know the technical end of what we do, how do you use the rundown and how to use Dillette and how do you deal with tape and how do you do graphics and all those beautiful things that make that bouquet. But if you don't have a flow of history and a sense of culture, you're doomed because you can't relate. Mm -hmm. And that's an important, important thing. But if you don't have a flow of history, if you don't have a sense of what came before you, you you're never going to really succeed. The best thing I could say to youngsters coming up in the business is to be nice and to be respectful and respect reputation. Um, it's important. And there are also three people that work in this business. It's such a small business. And it's really important to be nice. It's hard to always be nice when you're under deadlines constantly and you've got a thousand one questions that need to be answered tomorrow. And there's a lot going on. But you take a breath and you count to ten and you give them the answer, and you go back to doing what you're doing. One of the things that's terrible on a show is when you've got a negative person, it kind of pervades, and you don't need it there. So a positive attitude, not falling into an ego pit, being the best you can be and putting it on every day, and not getting into your own head and letting that drag you down. These are all things that I kind of live with on a daily basis, and I try to impart to the staff. Great, great attitude. Keep it going. You know, I mentioned earlier that you had associations with CNN and Fox. Uh, you've had a long, long career in the news. Where actually did your life in the news begin? At my mother's dinner table. You know, I am the son of a Holocaust survivor, and world events were discussed. Nothing was sugar-coated for children in my house, and my parents didn't suffer fools. And at the dinner table every night, which you had to be there at 6 o'clock regardless, and they are warm. They, my father may rest in peace, and my mom, very warm, wonderful people. But you should definitely have read the newspaper that day because <laughs> it's going to be discussed. And you had to be up on current affairs because it's going to be discussed. And what book are you reading right now and where are you at because it's going to be discussed. But professionally, I graduated college on a Sunday, and I walked into America's Talking Television on a Monday. America's Talking was a small little cable venture that NBC started. It later morphed into MSNBC, and I worked on a show called Have a Heart, which was about people in need needing help. And it was supposed to be almost a telethon of sorts. And it's like, you know, hey, my kid needs a trumpet. Who can help out? And it was an interactive thing, but it was way too early for interactivity. And we would hope that people would call in and say, I've got a trumpet for your kid. But as it turned out, it didn't really work out that way because there was like three people watching. So what happened was I was transferred to... Roger Ailes' show, which was called Straightforward, not knowing who or what Roger was in the scheme of the political world. He was this guy that was my boss, and we had a lot of great people that came through those doors. 
and um, I got to meet them. A lot of celebrities, newsmakers, Kissinger was pretty interesting. Joan Rivers would host for us for a week, Valerie Harper. Um, it was delightful. And Roger Ailes went to start Fox News Channel. I went with him, and we started a network. And I was blessed in that I had the opportunity, not once but twice in my career, to launch a whole network. So many people can work in this business for 30, 40 years. You launch a show, sure. You launch a special, sure. But an entire network is a pretty amazing thing to see begin. And I saw it twice, and I was a part of it twice. Um, at Fox News Channel, I was an associate producer when the doors opened up. And I worked on a little show called The O'Reilly Report. <laughs> um, I was promoted to executive producer and given a show called The Cryer Report. Everything was a report. <laughs> at Fox in the beginning. And Catherine Cryer, who was the youngest judge ever appointed to the bench in Texas, and a brilliant, brilliant lady, and a dear friend, um, I was her executive producer. And that was for about three months. And for the first three weeks, I would tell her that we were doing weird things, and she'd just hang up on me. You know, Catherine, we're doing click. Catherine, <laughs> yeah. Until she got it, and we were kind of in simpatico. But then Lewinsky broke, and I wound up becoming the executive producer of The O'Reilly Report, and a couple of months later, we retooled it and called it the O'Reilly Factor. The Factor was interesting, and people asked me a lot of questions about Bill. And he's an interesting character, and I was blessed to work with I learned a lot from Bill. What was the best experience you had with Bill? The best experience with Bill? I'll tell you the best experience with Bill. So we're in Donald Rumsfeld's office, <laughs> and... <laughs> It's the warm, middle of the a warm, <laughs> fuzzy guy. I can tell both of them. So we're in the we're in the Eisenhower lunchroom. We're all set up to do this interview, and in walks Donald Rumsfeld, who's an intimidating character by any stretch of the imagination, as is Bill. And the first thing Rumsfeld says is, "Who's his producer?" And I raise my hand, and you're like, "Will you tell him to get things right?" And I just kind of raised my hands, and I was like, "What am I gonna do?" And Bill's like, oh, stop it. I get it right all the time. And they went on to have a fun conversation. There's a lot of stories, and there's a lot of fun stories, a lot of hard work. I will tell you that Bill's team works hard, but Bill also works hard. I think he is the only person in television news that writes the entire show, the entire show. From the cold open to the letters to the teases, it's mind-boggling. He's really dedicated and uh, a smart, smart human being. I might not agree with everything he says, but he is very, very, very... Stimulating. Uh, stimulating mind. Mm -hmm. Biggest disaster you ever had on, on television? Oh, that would have to be Fox and Friends during a Camel. We were doing a Christmas show, and, you know, Fox and Friends is a free-for-all and a lot of fun, and we could do anything we wanted to do. And we were doing some sort of Christmas setup and. I said that we had to have a camel and live animals come to the studio <laughs> because it was a Christmas show. And I was you're warned. Near, you're near Radio City, too. There are yeah, camels we're near, right, we, right we, down the block. Well, I, we, as a Staten Island boy, I think we went to the Staten Island Zoo where they schlepped this poor camel into our studio. But he bowed his head when he came through the doors, which I thought was really, really cool. Professional camel. Oh, totally. Totally knew what he was doing, except he wasn't toilet trained. Ah. As weren't the goats. <laughs> and our head of production wanted to have my head on a silver platter after that taping. And I do believe I helped clean the studio that day on my hands and knees. <laughs> um, but that said, so much fun. And one of the things I'm most proud of, I created a after-the-show web stream. So when Fox & Friends ends, it continues for 10 more minutes online. In 2007 or 8, 
I was asked to, hey, what can you do digitally? And I was thinking and thinking and thinking. And I said, you know what? I can continue the show for 10 more minutes at the very back end of the show. And they said, why? And I said, why not? You know, let's get a little looser and have a little more fun. So the after the show show is an acronym. It's the end of the show, folks. And it is the after the show show. It was there once the camera kind of went off, but it was still on, where everybody loosened up and had a good time. Um, you weren't stiff anymore. And the internet and streaming like that, I think we were the first, I think, out there, something like that. And it goes on to this day, and it's a part, and it's a staple of the network. So the Fox years, which were long, and I had 17 with Ailes, um, were wonderful, creative, stimulating. I met so many people, and a lot of relationships that were built that are now being utilized to help this show, Metro Focus. Um, hey, I need this person, that person, or this person. And no matter what the political bent is or what strata of life they're from, you know, whether it's Joe Torrey who's coming on or Secretary Cohen and his wife who's coming on, they're coming. And it's not so much because if it's FNC or CNN or whatever, they're coming because it's PBS. Yeah. And they really want to help. Um, conversely, um, you know, for a lot of the listeners out there who think that, you know, hey, I'm this Fox guy, I also did CNN. And I launched Wolf Blitzer's afternoon show called Wolf because why not? <laughs> um, I really wanted to call it Blitzer, but they, um, we, Wolf won on that one. I must say that working with Wolf was a pleasure. One of the smartest, sweetest, genuine people I've ever worked with. And what was also wonderful, I mentioned before that I'm the son of a Holocaust survivor, as is Wolf. So I do think in 2014, maybe in the history of television, who knows, Wolf and I are the only... Um, two anchor EP teams mm -hmm. that were both children of survivors. And that flavors the way I look at a lot of things personally. When Boko Haram kidnapped all those women in Nigeria, I went ballistic. Because those women... It's personal. Oh, beyond. And when you hear the horror stories and they're being sold for $12 into slavery, I had to scream from the rooftop. That's my grandmother. That's my aunt. So... That's what TV is for. It's that platform. And if I could expose and help, I was gonna, and I did. And I feel really good about it. Got yelled at a little bit about certain things, but whatever. You were talking about your family and growing up around the dinner table and uh, being schooled and sort of demanded of you that you have a knowledge of current events and, and what's going on. Uh, why do we as individuals need to have that curiosity about, about the world and what's going on? The world is a wild place of beauty and of horrible things. Again, there are stories that are going to enlighten you because they need the light as antiseptic. And then there are going to be stories that we're telling you that are just beautiful to see and to hear. And there's a balance. My mother, her people came from the pogroms. My father came from the camps. And don't forget, but don't not appreciate the beauty. And on that same tip, my father was such a smart man. During the civil rights movement and after, um, you know, I'm a child of the late 60s, and I remember in the early 70s and there were marches and civil rights marches, and in his heavy accent he would say, you've got to stand up for the other people. You know, it freaked him out. African Americans in this country were treated as second class because he said, it could be you. It was me. 
and he had this heavy accent. It was so important. Equality was so important. Civil rights was so important. And if it's not you to stand up, then who? And where were the voices in 39 and 40 and 41, even earlier, that could have saved millions of people and they turned a blind eye? That colors everything that I do, I think. And be it damned or be it right, I don't know the answer. It is who I am. I am the equation or the sum of a lot of different parts and a lot of different people. And I love them all for making me who I am. And if I can help or impart some of my wisdom or whatnot, wow, I'm blessed. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Tom. And all the best uh, with the continued success of Metro Focus. Thank you. And please listen and watch uh, Metro Focus. Go to metrofocus.org. Check us out and get the app. It's free. Please join us again soon for another episode of Up Next. And let us know what you think about our podcast. And be sure to tell your friends about us. And please don't forget to subscribe. WNET Up Next is brought to you by the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York Public Media in association with the Interactive Engagement Group. I'm Tom Stewart.